You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with the author of The Art of Action and I'm talking about the book and what statisticians like you can learn from it. So stay tuned. It's an awesome interview. So the author of uh, The Art of Action, Stephen Bunge, is a really, really interesting person. He has a background in um, lots of consulting experience and also from history. So he wrote a couple of interesting books about history and through that learned a lot about leadership. And in terms of leadership, there's an area that maybe is very, very much not looked at from the business area, but actually where business can learn quite a lot from. And that is the area where for a very, very long time we have seen the biggest organization. Do you know what that is? It's a military. Okay, maybe not something that we are really happy about, but still, you know, just take it as it is. These organizations needed to lead for a couple of thousands of years. Yeah, so, so how did the Romans organize their military? How did, you know, the Prussians organize their military? How did the French organize their military? How is military organized today? How is it led? And so there's a lot of insights that we can get from this area. And yeah, just don't think about it. If you, you know, if I also really love peace, I don't like war, but, but really I think there's a lot of learning from it. So just see it as, you know, a really, really good learning that you can take on for your everyday life. So stay tuned for this awesome episode. Do you regularly listen to this podcast or maybe this is the first one? If you like it, please tell your colleagues about it. Yeah, just head over to someone that you like within your office that's also a statistician and, you know, tell him about it. And maybe, you know, he's listening already to, about this podcast and then you can chat about this podcast, chat about the content, reflect together about it. And that way you can learn more about all these different things that we are sharing and discussion, uh, discussing here. So that gives you an opportunity to deeper go into these topics because through these personal reflections with someone else, you will better understand and you can also get feedback about it. Or maybe there's a controversial topic and you just disagree with me, which can also be the case. Yeah, so then you have at least someone that you can uh, speak about it as well. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI. PSI is a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. You can join PSI today and further develop your statistical capabilities. There's the ever-growing video-on-demand content 
library and there are regularly a lot of webinars that you can join for free and there's a lot more actually. So head over to psiweb.org where you can find out about all the PSI activities and where you can join PSI today. Welcome Stephen to talk about the book The Art of Action. Uh, it was really a pleasure to read it. And it was great because I also got the recommendation about it from Justine, who was on this podcast actually earlier. And now having you on the podcast, this is really nice. So, um, this, you know, The Art of Action is a really interesting book because it has this, you know, history in terms of military history into mm. it and, and that, you know, you learn from that also for the business. So one of the terms that I find really interesting, and I, you know, just to go through the military, you know, these are the biggest organizations that have existed for a very, very long time. So there's yep. a lot of kind of experience of how to lead big organizations. You know, if you think back to the Romans, they couldn't just, you know, bring <laughs> someone in Germany and say, Hey, from here's, here's Rome, you should now do this and this and what happened. Yeah. So, so then yeah. much more about leadership in, in there. So, and, you know, one of the things that I find also really interesting is, you know, during war, all kinds of different things happen. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the plan doesn't really work out and so mm -hmm. always kind of changes and changes. And the same yeah. is, yeah. So, yeah. so you think about, you know, We'll do this, 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 and this, and then it will plan out. But of course, something, you know, happens and then it's not like that. Yeah. The, the term that is used in the book is friction. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more what, the, what that term means, friction? Because right. I think that is a central thing. Okay. Yes, it is. The reason I explore military history in the book is not that I regard war as a metaphor for business. I think that uh, generals either face completely different issues from business people or exactly the same ones. And that a successful organization is one that's well adapted to the environment it's in. About 200 years ago, the Napoleonic era, the environment of battle changed. Things scaled up. And it was no longer possible for a single individual to control all the elements of their organization. Uh, the classic example of the person who did that was Frederick the Great, who issued all the commands of the Prussian army in the 18th century with some success. Um, the organization was built around uh, standardized drills, and that actually enabled it to be very flexible in the face of the enemy. Uh, but After Frederick's death in um, 1786, the environment changed very rapidly with the coming of the French Revolution. Things scaled up, and it was no longer possible to do that. And it wasn't just scale. Uh, there were changes in weaponry, changes in communications. And the characteristic of that environment was actually summarized by the brilliant Prussian theorist and soldier, Karl von Clausewitz. And he poses a very interesting question at the beginning of his monumental volume on war, von Krieg, 
which is still the most cited, though I'm afraid not the most read uh, book on that subject in military academies today. It's uh, about a thousand pages long, pure early 19th century German, so most people avoid it. Uh, but the reason that he thought about things like this is that what he what he said was that uh, from the outside, it, going to war looks very easy, but in fact, it's extremely difficult. It's like working in a resistant medium. It's an environment that makes doing simple things difficult and difficult things impossible. And he thought harder and longer about why that was. And he came up with this concept of friction. He uses the term, he, he borrows it from English. He calls it friction. So it's a term from mechanics. Um, and it's about why things go wrong. He talks about organizational complexity. He talks about a single individual in one battalion not understanding what he needs to do and starting to go off on his own and screw things up. So the fact that we are all independent agents means that, you know, some people don't get the message. Uh, some people get the message but don't like the message and they wander off and do their own thing. He also talks about the nature of environment itself, and he, he uses an example, a very simple, homely example of a traveler um, getting a horse and going on a journey, which he thinks is going to take a few hours, and he'll arrive in the late afternoon. And then uh, he discovers that the horse loses a shoe, and he needs to lead it to an inn. And then he discovers there's no hay in the inn, and there's nothing to eat and he can't find a blacksmith. And in the end, late at night, and he loses his way because he hadn't expected that. So, you know, to put it in a very blunt English term, shit happens right, <laughs> all the time. And and this is just one guy going on a journey um, where he doesn't really have a very good map, and nobody's trying to get in his way. And it's still, you know, a, a major undertaking. So when you multiply that by a few hundred thousand people who are actually engaging in combat and there's somebody on the other side who is actually trying to make your life difficult, who's trying to stop you, you can imagine why it is that war and battle are so difficult. Now, what Clausewitz did was to lay the foundations for some thinking about how do we develop an organization that is actually capable of dealing with this phenomenon of friction. And that the person who actually did that uh, in Germany was, was Helmut von Moltke, the elder, who um, came up with a, an approach, which I call leading through intent, uh, which has been developed not only in theory, but in practice. Clausewitz is the theorist. Moltke is the practitioner. Um, on In business, on the other hand, um, we have a very different model of the world. So at the same time as in the Napoleonic era, early businesses were built around machines, machines like the spinning jenny. And business was all about efficiency. So the workers in the business just had to be the servants of the machine and do what any, exactly what they were told to follow standardized procedures in order to produce everything that was the same in a completely controlled environment. And that metaphor, that is a metaphor of an organization as a machine, is one which 
has lasted through right into the 20th century. In fact, it was sanctified by Frederick Winslow Taylor in his famous book, Scientific Management, in 1911, where he basically said that managers should think and workers should do exactly what they're told. He was one of the people who started these time and motion studies. And the ideal worker is really a robot who doesn't use their brain at all. Um, now, this unleashed tremendous productivity in the business world. Henry Ford read that book and thought, yes, this is the way. And he built his factories to make the Model T Ford based on Taylor's principles. Um, but the only thing was that all the cars they produced were Model T Fords and they were all black. So what do you do when you want different models and when the environment around you is changing all the time? And gradually, over time, the unpredictability of the environments increased. The need for adaptability has increased. But here we are in business still with this old machine model. It's a legacy that we're trying to shake off. I see all my clients try to shake off all of this all the time. But the basic assumptions are that you can predict outcomes and you just need to be efficient. Now, Clausewitz's basic assumption is that you can't predict outcomes at all. Um, and what therefore you need to do is to have an organic model of the organization, as indeed the word itself suggests. An organization is a group of people with disparate motivations who need to be aligned around a common goal. Um, if you try to optimize the parts, which is what Taylor recommends, you'll actually sub-optimize the whole in a complex adaptive system. So all the parts, all the different functions shouldn't be going off on their own and creating a um, an IT strategy and an HR strategy and a finance strategy. They should be thinking about what contributions they can make to the business strategy, thinking from the outside in. They may have to sub-optimize their own role in order to optimize the performance of the business as a whole. And managers are not engineers they are leaders of people and their job is to motivate them and be willing to adapt what they do as the circumstances change. So this is a very different <laughs> world, um, but we can benefit hugely from the experience of military organizations who've been having to deal with that environment for 200 years, some successfully, some not. A lot of them, of course, continued along a Tayloristic route and tried to turn their soldiers into robots, and they usually came to a sticky end pretty quickly. Uh, now, what's the consequence of friction for us? Well, I've produced a model that I call the three gaps, which sort of summarizes the problems that, um, that friction creates for us. And the first of the three gaps is the knowledge gap. Um, what I mean by that is that we never have perfect information. Perfect information is infinitely expensive. There are always things that you do not know, and some of them are things that you can't know even in principle because chance events will take place uh, that are totally unpredictable. I hardly need to emphasize that point in the post-COVID-19 era. We've now found out that, indeed, this has always been the case. So that means we can't make perfect plans. The second gap is what I call the alignment gap, which is the difference between what we'd like people to do and what they actually do. We go back to Clausewitz's principle here that actually we're all, we've all got independent wills. And so some people 
don't understand the message. Some people understand it and uh, disagree with it. Some understand it, think it's a good idea, but it's actually not in their interests. So they'll try and subvert it quietly as things go on. So we have some real work to do to align everybody within the organization behind what we want to achieve collectively. And the third gap is that even if we did have perfect plans and everybody did do what they were told, that's no guarantee that we're actually going to achieve the outcomes we want because the outcomes when we take action in the real world depend on the action of others, people who have independent wills of their own and some of them, of course, are our competitors. And so we need to have people who not only understand what we want to achieve collectively, but are willing to adapt their actions to still try and achieve that, even if circumstances change. I say even if they can expect circumstances to change. Yeah, it does always change. Yeah, and the person who produced the basic organizational model that's capable of dealing with that, the architect of it was really Helmut von Moltke, the elder. And if you know any quote of his, it is probably no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Oh, that's um, him, yeah. right? <laughs> that's old Uncle Helmut. And he says that for very good reasons, because when you make contact with the enemy, you're meeting an independent will and you don't know what they're going to do. They may do something sensible. They may do something stupid. They're suffering from friction as well. So they'll probably screw things up. And so the art of victory is screwing things up less than the other side uh, and being ready to exploit their errors. Uh, so one of his principles was that he always assumed the enemy would make the best possible decision from their point of view. And therefore, if they didn't, he had an opportunity. He only had nice surprises. Um, so the challenge for us now really is to learn from these models, translate them into the unique situations we're in by following the same principles and adopting some of the practices uh, that they developed over many years. They tried things out, and if they were, they did more of them, and if they didn't, they stopped. And uh, the art of action is about um, how you can do that. Very, very good. Yeah, so in terms of, you know, we see a lot of similarities in, in business. Yeah, so, so you have people at the top that, you know, talk about strategy quite a lot and yeah. whether that's actually a strategy is another kind of thing. That's a very good question, yes. Then, then the other point is at the lower end, you know, we have, we don't get drilled on certain things, but we have our standard operating procedures. That's right. That we are following uh, to, and then yeah, so you you get these news from the CEO about yeah, this is the strategy, and then you know you get maybe certain managers drill it down to what what does it mean for for their department, how mm. you know their department strategy fits into the overall strategy, and then maybe really good team leaders also do it for for their teams. And then, you, you know, you have on the other side the standard operating procedures. So, so yes. how do we, you know, the strategy from the top and the standard operating procedures, the SOPs, how, how do they kind of link together? Yeah. So the, the military have SOPs as well. And SOPs have great value um, because they, if you, if you understand what they all are, you can react very quickly in a coordinated way when a particular situation arises. 
for example, if somebody in the British Army says to a corporal, I want you to form a roadblock, roadblock is a defined term and there's a standard operating procedure in it. Um, it has a kink in the road, for example. Uh, there's a soldiers are posted at certain particular points to ensure that they can stop a vehicle and only open fire if it goes through the roadblock. If it comes in too fast, it'll come off the road and so on. This has been learned from experience. So the word roadblock encompasses an SOP. Now, of course, in the pharmaceutical industry, we have SOPs. We have thousands of the damn things to follow when conducting clinical trials. And they're potentially very useful. But SOPs have a dark side. Because if we allow SOPs to move up in level from the day-to-day tactical practice, um, then they can start to constrain us. And as we have SOPs telling us what to do at this low level, and we have the strategy telling us what to do at the high level, if they meet in the middle, we've disempowered all our managers and they can't make any decisions for themselves. Moltke confronted that problem and he made a previously people's distinguished strategy from tactics, right? What he did was to say, no, we can't think in two levels. We have to think in three levels. We keep tactics in, in their place. SOPs are very valuable if they are your slaves, but they quickly become tyrants if we allow them to become our masters. Everybody is obliged to follow those, but they're also obliged to follow the strategy. But I'm going to formulate my strategy as an intention. I'm going to say my strategy is about what to achieve and why, and I'm not going to say how. I'm going to create a third level that links strategy and tactics, and he called it the operational level. I call it because in business, the word operations often means what the military mean in tactics. I've changed the word. I simply call it the executional level. This is an area of freedom that everybody has in which they are not only allowed, but obliged to make decisions and take actions within specified boundaries in order to achieve that adaptability as well. And you insert this operational level or the executional level between strategy and tactics. Now, how big that has to be depends on the business. So there are some businesses um, where it's actually quite small. So, for example, I I worked uh, some time for a hospitality retailer in the UK. They, They run a chain of pub restaurants. Now, they had an awful lot of standard operating procedures, and a store manager had to follow the rules in terms of the decor, the menus, the pricing, uh, the sourcing, and so on, but was given discretion around certain local matters. For example, they would source um, perishable food themselves locally, and they were given a budget to do that. They would decide how much labor to hire from one day to the next because the demand in the pub depended very much on local weather conditions. So the center didn't interfere with that. But the area of discretion for a um, for a store manager was was quite small. I remember that the marketing director of this company telling me once, if I gave them all the marketing budget, they'd spend it all within the first three days and have nothing left. You can't trust the buggers with any money. <laughs> so that's why he did that. 
Um, if we take another business, business I was in for 20 years, consulting, it's, it's a partnership. Uh, every client is different. And really, the only standard operating procedures that we had in the Boston Consulting Group were slide formats. So we all had to use Helvetica 14-point bold, I think, on slides. Um, and the boilerplate that went on proposals to make sure that we didn't get ourselves into um, deep trouble um, legally. And apart from that, it's up to each case team to work out how it manages its relationship with its client. We had certain direction to go in. So from a strategic point of view, we wanted to favor large clients who were global. This is in the mid-90s. We shifted away from doing local office work um, to more global clients. All the partners knew that, and so they tended to follow that direction, but they still made all their individual decisions. So in this business, that operational area was very large indeed. And so a challenge for every business is to decide how big that should be, but everybody needs, needs it somewhere to some extent. It's only a matter of degree. So in terms of, you know, these, these three different uh, levels, so the strategy speaks about what is to achieve and why it is to yes, achieve. Yes, the task and, and the, the purpose. And the uh, execution then is about how you achieve it. That's right. And the SOPs is then, so to say, it, what is kind of, when there are certain kind of standard tasks that come yes. up, it, it, it's for, yes, standardized day-to-day procedures. And you don't want to spend, you see, if you've got good SOPs um, and all the troops know them, right, sort of how to write an invoice, say, banal stuff like that, it means that supervisors and managers don't have to spend their time making sure that it's done properly because everybody's already been trained in how to do it. So it actually frees up the time of your management yeah. ranks to think about the stuff that's not covered by SOPs, to think of what's unusual about this situation. Um, if you had to reinvent, I don't know, your billing procedure every time you send a client an invoice, I mean, the, the organization would collapse, right? So we, we do actually yeah. need them. They're neither good nor bad. Um, but they're because they're powerful, they're dangerous. So you've got to control them. Okay, that's very good. So in terms of, in, in, you know, why is it so important to kind of give freedom in terms of the how? If the manager already knows. Ah, oh, yes, yes, I know best, yes. Well, <clears throat> now this is one of the disciplines that managers need to learn in giving direction. It's very tempting when the people reporting to you are doing a job that you used to do and that you used to do very well, which is why you got promoted in the first place, it's very tempting to actually go into how. Um, but it's a mistake. Um, there are two fundamental reasons why it's a mistake. The first is that they actually know more about the situation than you do. Um, to make a good decision, you need some knowledge of the context and some knowledge of the situation. The more senior you get, the more you know about the context and the less you know about the specific situation as you go up in the ranks. 
if they're going to tell you everything that it's necessary to know about the situation, then you can write off hours and hours and hours. They'll be writing you memos and having phone calls and meetings all the time. A lot of people do that, actually. They, they get their subordinates to tell them everything they know about it, and then they make a decision. Um, if they do that consistently, their careers will be quite short because they'll suffer a heart attack through work overload before too long. Moltke knew this phenomenon very well um, and said that um, senior officers often make this mistake. Um, in a um, in a manual, field service manual that was published in 1888 under his guidance, it actually contains the remarkable sentence, senior officers may on no account go into detail. For if they do, firstly, they risk the instructions they give being redundant as times moved on. And secondly, they infringe the right of their subordinates to freedom of action. And that's the second reason why we don't want people to do that, is that you will be surprised at how good your subordinates can be, especially if they work as a team, when they actually are given not a solution, but a problem. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense, because, you know, as soon as you get into the details, there'll always be kind of questions. And, and you yep. know, if you're told you exactly how to do it, then you will always need to go back to your supervisor whenever there's some kind of details. That, that yeah, that's yeah. right. So it slows everything down, yeah. overloads the supervisor, and, you know, you're being paid to do this job. It's very common for people to do the job of the level below. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they don't know. Because I was working with a group of Danes, very talented group, uh, who were the R&D executive um, in a medical device company and, and they were very proud of the project briefs that they produced and uh, they wrote these for the project managers and on, I looked at one of them and um, there was, just to give you an example, there was a specification in there that the needle on this thing, which is for the patient to use on themselves, should be four millimeters long mm. and this is for a new product that's going to be ready in 18 months time and I said, Would you reject the product if the design team came up with a needle that's three millimeters or five millimeters long? And they sort of looked at each other. Oh, well, it's got to be four millimeters because of the strength of the materials and the stiffness and the ease of application. I said, yeah, but materials technology is changing all the time. Why do you need to say this? Can't the team work it out for themselves? Maybe they'll come up with an innovative. If you don't say anything they might just come up with a creative solution to this problem. What you need to tell them is it must be easy for the patient to use and obviously it must be safe so it mustn't break or get stuck or anything like that. Why don't you then leave? You've got a whole team here of highly paid, talented people working on this project. Anyway, the net result of all this is that what they realized after a while, because they were bright guys, is that they'd been doing the job at the level below. They, if, if this spec had come from the project team, we'd have said, excellent, off you go, do it. But they're the R&D exec. Yeah. They shouldn't be going into details like that. It's, it's a bit of a discipline because your, your instincts, when things, especially when things go wrong, your instincts are to get in there and get a grip on things. So another yeah. little story from, uh, that, that same company, actually, it was the, uh, the pub chains. Um, I was talking to the, the head of the, um, the sites 
he was responsible for all the properties. He was the property manager. And uh, he got a call from his regional manager in South Wales one evening, uh, one Saturday evening, saying that there'd been a fire in a pub in South Wales. Um, now, this chap had dealt with pub fires before, and he said, everything, every fibre of my body told me to get in the car, drive down to South Wales, and sort the thing out. But he'd actually uh, done some time in the army, and he remembered his army training. So he said, right, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay where I am. And instead of doing that, he got his regional manager to talk through the problem, and he asked him questions about it. And he then said, okay, uh, I want you to send me back your plan of action. Then I want you to go off, give me a call in the morning. I'm here all night if there are any problems. So he went off. The regional manager went off, did his stuff. They had a call in the morning. They had a call in the evening. Then he left it for a day. Then he left it for two days. Now, he said, um, what did I learn from this? Firstly, he came up with a better solution to the whole thing than I would have done. He had relationships with the local police, uh, with the local employees and so on. He's established it there himself there in the local community. Uh, and he knew stuff about what went on there that I would not have known. Secondly, I've developed this person. And developing this person has made him more valuable for the company. And it's made him more valuable for me because next time there's a fire in Wales, I know that I don't have to worry about it because this guy can handle it. Yeah. Right? And he said, the hardest thing for me was not to get in the car and go and sort it out. I had to overcome that emotional instinct to do it, but I'm very glad I did. I created value in so many ways simply by not doing that. So how, do, how does the manager make sure that kind of, you know, that he's giving the right support? So, so of course, he, right. you know, what's mm. going on and kind of, yeah. and, and yeah, see, see whether there's, you know, yes. you can always say, okay, this is the intent. These are the boundaries. Um, this is what we want to achieve. Yeah, that you, you, there's always kind of things that you don't think about in terms of this. Yes, so that that those yeah, the, the the setting the boundaries and so on is a task of setting direction, as I call it, and making sure that people have the right resources is a is a management task. You've got to equip them to do it, but then there's a leadership task, and that is encouraging them to use the space in the right way without getting into trouble. Yeah. Now, I often hear people, when they talk about leadership, they talk about their leadership style. And you'll hear people say, well, I'm um, I'm a big picture person. I don't like to get into the weeds. I do to others. I like to delegate. And other people will say, well, I, I like to be hands-on. You know, I like to keep control of things and so on. And they have their management style. And they expect their people, the people who report to them, to adapt to their style. But as a leader, you should not be doing that. As a leader, you should be offering your people the kind of support that they need, not what it's convenient for you to give. And so you need to assess the experience and skills and capabilities of each of your individuals and adapt your style accordingly. Some of them will need more support than others. Some of them may have the skills, but they lack the self-confidence. So they've got to know that you're there. Empowering people doesn't mean saying this is your problem and 
going yeah. away and yeah. leaving it to them. You retain responsibility for that outcome and you have to develop them. And the way I like to think about this is a little model that I think was developed originally in GE, which is to say that um, people all have a comfort zone. And uh, if you keep them in that, everything will work fine, but they won't develop or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or grow. So outside the comfort zone is the learning zone. And, and, and what you want to do is to find out where they're comfortable and then push them to the edge of the comfort zone so that they start to learn and be available to answer questions, coach and support. However, there's another zone outside the learning zone, which I call the panic zone. <laughs> and if you give them too much freedom and not enough support and they land in the panic zone, they will do just that. They'll panic and they'll run straight back into the middle of their comfort zone and it'll be very hard indeed to move them out of it. Yeah, exactly. So you've I, got I, to know your people yeah. um, and adjust your style to them. And you can adjust it by um, making the boundaries narrow or broad and over the control loop. So you can say, you know, as this, this guy, the property manager, he said, okay, send me your plan tonight. We'll have another call. Call me tomorrow morning. Um, next time. It's probably going to be, okay, there's been another fire. You know how to handle this. Let's just go through the checklist. Off you go. Give me a call in two or three days. Yeah. In other words, you give him a bit more space. Yeah. 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 So in terms of from the, from the lower end, what, how would kind of, you know, a good reporting back look like to, to such, such a manager? Yeah. Well, we're all, Uh, followers as well as leaders, all, all, all of us, and um, people talk a lot about great leadership. They don't talk about great followership. Um, so the way in which you get alignment is by developing a common shared understanding, and that takes work on the part of both the, the boss and the subordinate, if you like. We're all doing that. And so the, the process that actually Moltke created is one that I call briefing and back briefing. So you brief someone about what the intentions are and the boundary conditions. You let, you don't tell them how you let them go away and have a think. And then they come back and they brief you back. Hence it's called a back brief. So you say, this is what I heard you say. This is what I understood. This is what I'm going to do as a result. And The quality of that interaction clearly depends on both parties. So a good follower has to be willing to ask questions and not pretend they've understood something when they haven't really. Yeah. Uh, or try to second guess what their boss wants to curry favor. They've got to have the moral courage to actually say, well, look, I, you said this, but that's ambiguous to me. And uh, this situation, do you want me to do A or B? You know, I'm a bit confused. So they've got to be very open about that. They've got to have the willingness to shoulder responsibility and to say, well, you know, if, if the boss hasn't told me what to do, don't go and say, oh, we got this problem. What do you want me to do? Try and think of a solution. Try and try and think out what what would what do you do and go and check whether that solution is the right one or the only one, 
in the conversation, they may come up with other aspects of the thing that you weren't aware of or you hadn't thought of. So you can always benefit from someone else's experience, but you've got to be willing to have an open conversation. And you've got to have that quality, which doesn't really have a precise term in English, but in German is called Entscheidungsfreude. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be willing. I think we, in English, we probably say willing to, you know, a, a sense of responsibility, but literally enjoying taking decisions. Yeah. And some people really do, right? They, they relish the chance to make their mark and they want freedom. Um, there are other people, though, who I'm afraid don't like doing that at all, because if they do do that, they accept responsibility for an outcome that they cannot completely control because of friction. And they really want to be told exactly what to do so that if anything goes wrong, they can always say, well, it's not my fault. I followed due process. That's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, fortunately, <clears throat> most people like that tend to join the civil service and become a Beamter because that's what being in the civil service is about, at least at junior levels. You, and it's very important in uh, government organizations that everybody is treated the same way. I mean, if you knew that <clears throat> one tax inspector is going to take a very different view of your tax return from another tax inspector, you're opening up the field to corruption. Yep. You want them to be substitutable for each other. They are, they are servants of a process. So that kind of role is a perfectly legitimate one, but it's not usually the role we want people to play in business. We want you to treat customers appropriately. You don't necessarily treat them all the same. You don't necessarily take the same decision when a situation changes and you're not bound entirely by process. You do have scope for initiative. And it's people like that that we need in the managerial ranks in business. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I I have this kind of leadership principle for myself to have a bias toward action because mm. I... When I was in, in the German military, there was this in German, it's called Sven Scheiße, dann Scheiße mit Schwung. Kind of. If, yeah, you don't have to translate that. Well, it's typical, typical kind of military slang, but, but it basically yeah, yeah. Means that um, taking no action is, is usually worse than taking yes. and, and then you know, not achieving completely your, your result. That's right. So, so one of the things Moltke did <clears throat> was to encourage what he called independent thinking obedience. Uh, the, the phrase they used was selbstständig denkender Gehorsam. And he said that sins of omission, i.e. not doing anything, is worse than sins of commission. Yeah. yeah. Or, uh, I think his term is ein, or something like that uh, in the in the original, right, of uh, making a mistake in the choice of means. If somebody tries to do the right thing and makes a mistake or it doesn't work, you forgive them. But if they sit there and do nothing, you don't forgive them, in <laughs> other words. And, and, and you've obviously, the Bundeswehr is still trying to echo those principles today, though I have to say that the this, this technique, which in German is called Auftragstaktik, um, is something that the Bundeswehr struggles with, I understand. Um, it's, it's not so much at its heart. Although it, a lot of the principles I went in, I think went into the concept of inner yeah. 
uh, which, probably enough, the Danes also have a, a term a term for a very self leadership is what they call it. So this is this is a an approach which you can develop and then lose. In fact, um, it has to be constantly kept alive. It, it requires the expenditure of energy uh, in order to keep it alive um, because there's a sort of force of almost of organizational entropy, which tends to move large organizations further and further into a state of bureaucracy yep. Yep. where everybody is constrained by structure and process unless somebody decides to push back against it. And in particular, the person at the top decides to push back against it. And, and we, we suffer from that in particular today because there seems to be a rule of organizations that an increase in communications capacity leads to an increase in central control unless somebody decides to push against it. And of course, now, uh, you know, the ideal of sitting there in front of your screen and telling everybody exactly what to do all the time is, 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 is just about feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there are big arguments in military organizations as to whether Clausewitzian friction is actually historical and has been overcome by technology. And uh, I can tell you very clearly which side of the argument I stand on, which is, no, it hasn't. And technology will never overcome it. And the the idea that you can overcome it through technology is a dangerous delusion. One of the reasons Moltke interests me so much is that before his time, you find this model cropping up. It cropped up in the Royal Navy in the 18th century, embodied in Nelson. It, it's, it's usually associated with him. It wasn't Nelson who came up with it. He was just its best practitioner. It was the Navy's way of doing things. Because when you're on the high seas, it's impossible for an admiral to tell the captains in his ships what to do, because you know you, you can't talk to them and you yep. can't wave at them. Uh, it's interesting that at, at Trafalgar, the flag signaling system was first used, and, and that was actually the death of this system as the telegraph came up. Moltke's the first person who really has a choice because he, he lived in the age where the telegraph came along, and he could have sat in Berlin and given direct orders to his army, corps, and divisional commanders all the time, and he refused to do so. He actively refused to use the communications methods that there were to exercise control and insisted on creating a common shared understanding and of giving freedom of action to his subordinates. And he's the first person to have really done that who could have chosen to do otherwise. And a few other enlightened people have followed in his footsteps and other people have followed Frederick Winslow Taylor and come down and told everybody exactly what to do and try to turn them into robots even the most talented highly educated people uh, i'm i'm very struck that in the pharmaceutical industry in particular which recruits the cleverest people i've ever come across in business people with two phds in science and medicine a lot of these giant pharma companies treat them like monkeys resulting of course in huge cynicism it's almost as if the the cleverer the people are uh, the more they have to be controlled because they might come up with some wacky ideas or you know who knows they might even there's a serious danger 
they might come up with a new chemical compound that could turn into a blockbuster drug without us knowing it. And we wouldn't want that, would we? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what a disaster. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love it. It's, it's really, really great. So um, I hope uh, you as a listener, you really got a lot from, from this, this discussion and, you know, you're inspired to actually read the book because there's a lot more in there than what we have just talked about. You know, we talked about the, the gaps uh, that we need to overcome to actually have a, a working um, organization that can control the friction. We talked a lot about that. We talked about strategy and execution and, you know, the lowest level in terms of tactics and SOPs. And uh, also about, you know, this, Leading by intent, which is, I think, is a really, really good term. And uh, always when I think about, you know, giving tasks to people, I, I spend a lot of time about explaining why and, and things like that, how that fits into the bigger picture. And, yeah, it's also for me a constant kind of struggle to not tell exactly what, you know, others should do because I've been doing that maybe in the far past as well because, as we know, there's always kind of changes. Okay, as we're as we're coming to to the end of the interview, is there any final things that you would like to give to the listener? Um, yeah, maybe I'd come back to this personality that developed this method, old Uncle Helmut, um, and a personal motto of his, which I'll quote you in German and attempt to render in English, which was. Viel leisten, wenig hervortreten, mehr sein erscheinen. So it sort of comes from ancient Prussia. And I think that kind of modesty uh, of the great commander um, is something that humility in the face of the task, sort of it's sort of work hard, avoid the limelight. Uh, in other words, don't spend hours buttering up your Facebook page and be more than you seem to be or don't um don't get led astray by appearance yeah um putting yourself forward there's a certain humility in the face of um needing to run a large organization to accomplish something important which i think is runs completely counter to the cult of the ceo celebrity that we suffer from today yeah. and i think we can learn from his example, not only in terms of the techniques he had, but the value system that lay behind it. Very, very good. Awesome. Thanks so much for this awesome discussion about the art of action. We'll probably, I'll probably look into the book uh, again and again because there were so many nice things in it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much. you enjoyed this really really nice conversation about the art of action this show was created in association with psi thanks to rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening head over to the effective statistician where you can find the link to the show notes the book and all kind of other things and please don't forget to tell your colleagues about this podcast so you can have a discussion about this podcast and reflect more about it. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. 
just be an effective statistician.